At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 675th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm here with Mr. Bill McDormand. Hello, Bill. Hello, hello, Greg. Back as usual. Always fun to have you. So tonight we are talking about seed dehybridizing. Yeah. That's the, that's the opposite of hybridization. So we love hybrid vigor and what hybridized seed can offer. The only downside to hybridized seed is that you can't save it. What if you found out that isn't true? That you could capture the best traits of hybrid seeds and develop seed that would reproduce like its parents. In other words, true to type. Learn the tricks of the trade to dehybridize your favorite hybrid plants and lasting seed stock you can save. So that's from Bell. Bell put that together for us. Thank you, Bell. Yes, and, um, thank you, as uh, always. So let's jump in, Bill. Well, you know, I've, the origins of this topic happened to me way back probably in 1980 when I was involved in a little seed company in Missoula, Montana called Garden City Seeds. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of my partners there, we started a nonprofit. And one of my partners is this really smart guy, John Schneeberger, came to me one day and said, you know, maybe we should be just saving the seeds from the hybrids. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, there've been hundreds of millions of dollars worth of research into traits mm -hmm. that have been incorporated at great expense into our modern vegetable varieties. And a lot of these are disease resistance, but there's some other things too. It's hard, it, you don't see it for huge characteristics like cold tolerance or more flavor, but more specific traits sort of things, especially insect and disease resistance. But we have a lot of that. And then with climate change, we're bound to have more. So, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could have access to that? And so, you know, we've all been taught, you know, that you just can't save seeds from hybrids. And there's a really good reason why that we've been taught that. And it's, it's because it can be difficult depending on how you think about it. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope to do tonight is to kind of crack through that double click on that a little bit and, and get everyone to come on this adventure with me to understand that it's not difficult to do this. It's actually exciting and can be very successful if you just understand a few things. And so those are the things I've learned over the last 30 years that have really empowered me mm -hmm. to do this. And if you think about it, it's so exciting. I mean, if we're in an era now where protecting your products has become such a big thing to the point where now we're seeing patented seeds. Mm. Seeds that have literal, th these are the kinds of patents that you would apply to new um, tech gadgets or to software 
mm-hmm. are now being applied to living things, to seeds, to protect investments in them. But, but that they're far and few between. If you just look at the, the number of new things that have been brought out in the last 20 to 30 years. And, and the reason is industry, in a way, has learned to protect their investment by hybridizing, creating hybrids out of their best varieties and getting people to think that they can't save their own seeds. That way farmers have to come back year after year after year to buy their seeds. And that's what they want, right? They're in the business of doing that. And so most American gardeners, in fact, I remember one of the best gardeners in the valley I grew up in, in central Idaho, Judy Housel, rest her soul, had about an acre, almost like a truck garden. It was for, she was from a big family and she just loved to garden. And and I was talking to her about seed saving one time and she looked at me like I was kind of crazy saying, well, Bill, everybody knows you can't save seeds from American varieties. She said, hold on, American varieties? Yeah, that's what she said. And I'm going, what? I mean, it just seemed so outrageous. But this is a very intelligent woman. Mm -hmm. And so I started questioning her. And what I realized is that almost all the seeds she was buying now from American companies through her mail order catalogs or down at, you know, Ace Hardware off the racks were F1 hybrids. Right. So those are those have become the vast majority of American seeds available to people. So let's explain what F1 means. F1 is a shorthand that breeders use to designate the first generation of seeds that come after an intentional cross, mm-hmm. the F1 generation, okay. all right? And so you can have the F2 and F3 and F4, and this is going to be in- important as we go on in the evening. And in fact, a, a teaser, if you've got to run out and you don't learn anything else, is that if you save seeds from an F1, and go to plant those seeds, that's the F2 generation. Mm-hmm. And it may not look like the original F1, but it, some of them will. Mm-hmm. And all you really have to do is save seeds from that one, the F3 generation and the F4 generation. And as we were talking earlier, usually after six or seven or eight generations, you've got what you started with. Mm-hmm. You have a relatively true to type variety that has all the characteristics that were included in the original hybrid that you bought, if that's what you've been selecting for all those generations. And so all the genetics are in there. It's just a matter of saving seeds, which is what we have learned to do every year anyway. Oh, I get it. So what we're doing here is selecting the seeds from the fruit that we like the best. Right. 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 And then and saving those seeds and then planting right. them again right. and saving the seeds from the fruit that we like the best, fruit or vegetable. Right. Which is all that's all seed saving is. Right. Well, I got that. What what is amazing to me is that what I heard you just say was that by doing this with a hybrid, we can stabilize a hybrid so that it becomes more like an heirloom. Right. So, wow. let, me, let me give you a specific example, because this is the one I went through. When I lived in central Idaho at 6,000 feet, we would plant green peppers every year mm-hmm. and get very few peppers. Plants look great. I had a 90-day growing season, and I'm in the mountains at 6,000 feet. It gets cold every night. Mm-hmm. It wasn't freezing, so they, the plants made it, but I just wasn't getting peppers. So I did research, found out that peppers rarely set fruit at less than 40 degrees. If it gets 
colder than 40 degrees at night in the morning when those peppers wake up and that's when most pollination takes place bingo it just wasn't working the pollen wasn't working until we found a company who produced a hybrid and they were selling it at the time where they guaranteed that it would set fruit clear down to freezing they found a trade right wow. and uh -huh. they locked it up in a hybrid so we loved it we were growing it was called ace one ace f1 hybrid all right so okay. we we're going yeah this is so perfect. The ace was the pepper? The pepper. Okay. That was the pepper variety. So we're going, this is great, except we're seed savers and we want open pollinated varieties. We want our own. We want to be able to pass these seeds around at, at seed exchanges. We want people to get what they grow. They, we don't want to have to go through that hassle. So I enlisted the help of Joanne Robbins, who is a PhD plant breeder. She'd done her work mm -hmm. in strawberries, but this woman knew her stuff. And we planted 200 ACE plants in a row. Of, in the, a, about of, the, F2, of the F2, F1 seeds? Of the F1 seeds. No. So, yeah. No. Of the F2s. F2 seeds. Okay. Right. So we save seeds from the hybrid, which you're not supposed to do. Right? They say, oh, you uh -huh. can't save seeds from a hybrid. And why? Because you don't know what you're going to get. You know, it's a little bit like characteristics from grandparents showing up in grandkids. Right. You, you, sometimes red hair shows up. Sometimes all these things that weren't in the parents start showing up because it was in the grandparents. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the grandparents being the original parents of the hybrid, and that F1 is the first generation after that cross, we're going to save those seeds and plant them and create an F2 generation. All right. So we planted 200 plants of these F2s. And we got everything from this thing that looked like a white football. Oh, wow. Pepper, literally. Uh -huh. And this is supposed to be a regular sized, you know, bell, green bell pepper. Right. We got a white football and we got little teeny red hot peppers. On the other end of the spectrum, in every size and shape and color in between. Oh, interesting! I had we had no idea what the who the parents were or what kind of a wild thing they found to get this trait. Who knows? But that's what we got. But about eight, let's see, about sixteen plants, or about eight percent. And this is the math that runs in these sorts of. You can do some predictions if you want to get into plant breeding. Um, we found about 16 plants that actually had things that looked like ace peppers. And so we saved the seeds from those and mixed them and uh -huh. planted those in the next year and got about 30% of our peppers ended up. So we saved seeds from all of those, mixed them up, planted them, and the next year we got about 60%. 64% would be uh -huh. the, you know, the mathematical prediction so mm -hmm. it's never nature's never perfect mathematically but you can see where this is going after about eight generations you're up over 90 some percent of everything wow. you get look just like those original f1 peppers so uh -huh. this is what we're talking about now you know i'm generalizing and it's harder to do with some crops than it is others but it's a journey well worth taking and to mix things up now, what Joseph Lofthouse say in his book, Land Race Gardening, what he's doing is taking hybrids and mixing them in with your favorite open pollinators and letting everything get mixed up and doing the same thing. If you're going to save seeds for three or four generations to stabilize something that you want, why not have a party? Why, <laughs> why, you know, why start just with A? So anyway, this is a, a nutshell of what of the excitement that we're trying to to spread here is that because we're small, because we're backyard gardeners, we can do this. 
People mm-hmm. are going, what's the catch, right? Industrial right. farmers would never do this. They can't afford to. Right. If every pepper doesn't look like an ace and they take them down to the market, they don't have sales, mm-hmm. right? So they've got all the industrial farmers, all the market gardeners locked up. And so the strategy of hybridizing has worked. By and large, almost every farmer now buys all their own seeds. But underneath that is this whole new generation of radical revolutionary back to the <laughs> land, permaculture, whatever you want to call it. And we can have all of that power in our own hands. Almost none of the hybrids have been patented. This is legal, folks, to do so. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting over here like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how, yeah. Because, you know, we've always been told that hybrids. Yeah. You know, you're going to get what you get, but what you've done magically is you self-selected all along the way right. for what exactly what you want from the hybrids. Right. At, after eight generations, can I name it something else? <laughs> you know, there are no seed naming police. <laughs> you know, nobody's ever going to come. Where seed naming gets to be very important and we should be reverent about it is in large agricultural industrial systems. Uh-huh. Otherwise, they get to be really inefficient, right? Mm. Have, then we have a seed bank, and we've got three million accessions, and we find out that half of them are duplicates, right? We don't want that. So people are really focused, and I think you know we've all grown up getting our food from this system. There's a certain reverence about that, and I honor that. Yeah. How, however, if you look at the history of the creation of varieties, it, it's the opposite of that. Everybody has always played to their own vanity and named their own stuff if they could get away with it. I mean, in Appalachia, there are literal, there are the same beans. I heard a story one time about the exact same yellow dried bean that was being grown north of the Mason-Dixon line and south of the Mason-Dixon line. Sometimes in within a few miles of each other, and mm-hmm. they both have different names. And there's no way. Those are fighting words. You would never call your bean what the Southerners called it. And the Uh, Southerners uh, would uh, never call it what the North. And it's just right across that line, you know. So it even gets caught up in those sorts of cultural things. And so I'm, you know, be respectful in naming things in that be proud of it. And be proud of the work you put into it and the story that you have about it before you go naming things. So it can have so you can gain the respect of your community because that's really what it's all about. Right. So I I actually I've been doing that here for over a decade with the Rio Red cowpeas that I got from Native Seed Search. Right. And they just come back year over year over year. And I harvest them and I spread them all over town during our fruit tree program because they make great nitrogen fixtures and they love the heat. So they shade the ground. Right. So we use them as a green ground cover to shade the ground. And I now call them the urban farm cow peas. Why not? Why not? You know, Waltham Butternut Squash was named after the Waltham Experiment Station. Oh, in Pennsylvania, you know, mm-hmm. so there's a precedent. It's not just the person. It's not just a characteristic. Sometimes we use characteristics in name varieties, like early girl, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's early. Mm-hmm. Or we name them after the place in which they come. And so right. Urban Farm, I love that. <laughs> you were the first Urban Farm guy, you know? So it is, walk me through how we would go about dehybridizing. I know, I know we kind of looked at it a little bit, right. but so you're going to plant your F1 seeds uh-huh. and, and you're going to sa- grow them out. And save the seeds. Yes. 
and save the seeds. But what seeds are we going to save? All of them. As many as you can. Even and from the football-sized one down to the peppers? No, or? no, no. Okay, cool. So what you have to – so when you plant F1 uh, or ACE peppers, the packet you get, it says ACE F1 hybrid on it. Uh-huh. You bought your packet and you grow them and you get, they're all beautiful, uniform ace peppers. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what you paid for. That's what you expect. That's what you get. All right. So you're going to save seeds from those. Okay. So they all look the same at that point. Mm -hmm. Your, your F2 generation seeds are coming out of peppers that all look the same. That's what hybrids do. They give you the ability uh, in, in our Seed School Online and, and Seed School 101, we talk a bit about this process and what makes hybrids hybrids. Mm -hmm. And so if you want, you know, there's a way to double click on this, but we don't have time probably tonight. But just it's easy. Just save all the seeds. Now, if this is where you can game the function or whatever they call it. this is where you can gain a lot of knowledge and speed the process up is if you will save as many of those seeds as you can mm -hmm. and grow as many of those seeds as you can out. So what we're doing is growing out this F2 generation. All right. Our F2 seeds we're planting and we're seeing, and that's where I got white football all the way down to one little red hot thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, because in that F2 generation is where all the diversity really expresses itself. That's where all the traits that are are not dominant, all recessive? the all the recessive traits line themselves up and start expressing. Right, because we've got two relatively uniform parents, and they're may in a sense they're self-pollinating. Mm -hmm. And so you get a lot of recessive. So if you want to save yourself a lot of time and energy over the next four or five or six years, grow as many of those things out as you can. If you can't grow hundreds, grow a few yourself and give some of those seeds to your neighbors. Take them down to the seed exchange. Make up packets for your seed library and explain to everybody what you're doing. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to dehybridize this great pepper for our region. This mm -hmm. is what it looks like. Will you grow this out? And if you find any of these kinds of peppers, save seeds from those and then return some to me and I'll mix them with everybody else's and I'll give you some back. That way you get as many stabilizing genetics into this process as you can. Or maybe you take them down to the community garden. Mm -hmm. And you get to grow out a big row. Maybe this is what community gardens should really be about. <laughs> right. Is that grow F2 grow outs so that we have more and more of those varieties to look at. So when do we then, uh, the F1s, we just save all the seeds. Right. The F2, do we save all the seeds? No, only the ones that look like our ones we want. All right. Great. So that distinction starts with F2 hybrids. Right. Okay. That distinction starts. Now, there's something that that happens here. With ace peppers, it was really easy for us because we were living in a place that got cold at night. Mm -hmm. And so we wouldn't be getting mm -hmm. peppers if they didn't mm -hmm. have that characteristic. So mm -hmm. it came along with it. That can be a little bit more difficult to find with disease resistance. Mm -hmm. And so what some people will do is occasionally, like that, if it's not the F2 generation, maybe the F3, they're selecting whatever they're looking for. They'll take it back and grow it in a diseased place just to make sure that it's disease resistant uh, still. Very good. See? See, so you can, you know, it, you can make this as complicated and as effective as you want, 
or you can just save seeds from what works for you over the long run and make it easy. So as we get to F3, F4, F5, what are we doing about cross-pollinating? Well, you know, if you're like Joseph Lofthouse, you don't care. Mm-hmm. What you have to realize is you're starting with a pretty narrow set of genetics in the first place. Mm-hmm. And in the case of peppers, they're largely self-pollinating anyway. Uh, so that wasn't as a our real tomatoes, problem. Right? As are tomatoes. Okay. And lettuce and peas and beans. You don't normally see hybrid varieties of lettuce or peas or beans out there. Mm-hmm. But tomatoes and peppers you do. And so those are ones. And in fact, you know, so here's another thing we found. I'll just add, if you're on this adventure, there was a rumor that one of the major tomatoes, and I I don't think it was celebrity. It may have been celebrity. There was a, a big explosion of popularity around an F1 hybrid tomato, and everybody was talking about it. And so I immediately go, oh, I love the latest, it had all the disease resistance, yet it had all the heirloom flavor they claimed. It was just like mm-hmm. the perfect. So I said, okay, I'm going to dehybridize it. And I set myself about it. This is just going to take a few years, you know. And so I planted the F1. I got tomatoes, saved the seeds. I did this with my father. We plant the seeds and everything looks the same. Everything is the same in the F2 generation. What's going on here? It's not a hybrid. It's not a hybrid. They just put that on the packet to make you think that so you would have to buy them every year. And there's a rumor going around that many, even early girl tomatoes Uh. from Burpee, has been dehybridized by Burpee Uh so that they can more cheaply produce their own seeds. Okay? Wow. So that's a dirty little secret that's been floating around. And so you'll have to figure, you know... Isn't this fun? <laughs> I mean, right. it's just incredible, the adventures. Every time you get a packet of seeds, it doesn't matter where it came from or what it is. If you want it, you could probably, with some downline work. And so that gets back to what I am always try to say in every class I teach is that it doesn't matter what level you get into this whole thing, or what, you know, permaculture, whatever. It probably comes down to what kinds of genetic material that you're going to have to work with in your yard to survive mm-hmm. the coming storms or whatever. And that means seeds in a lot of cases. In your case, fruit trees are part of that or and yeah. lots of other things. But for so many of the things we did, seeds. And so it doesn't matter if you're involved with policy or industry or farming, whatever you're doing, go home and grow and save and share some of your own seeds. That that simple process is at the base of everything we're doing. And it not only adapts those crops to your own backyard, to give them a kind of resilience that they would never have anywhere else. It, now it can help unlock hybridizing, the, the whole hybrid thing. I mean, it's a really a powerful thing. Yeah. You know, wow, I mean, there's a, there's a cost, but, you know, once you get that as one of your habits, boy, you can create so much wealth. Right. Wealth of seeds. Wealth. Community wealth. Healthy yeah. wealth. Right? Wow. You've just blown my mind on a couple of things tonight around dehybridization when did so you must have figured out this whole dehybridized thing decades ago well i don't always get to it in our classes because Mm -hmm. we we talk a lot about getting people up and running and started and generally if you're going to start saving seeds um start with an heirloom or a land race that is not hybrid 
Because yeah. then when you save that first generation is, you know, the F2 generation isn't white footballs. It's what you expected. Right. Right. You know, and so, you know, it doesn't throw you for a loop and you're not involved in a multi-year thing just to get good seats. And so that's right. why we mostly talk about just doing it. But yeah, we've, you know, I've been doing this quite a while. I guess the greatest thing that happened to me around this is when Bell and I were asked to come to the Philippines right. to teach seat saving. Mm-hmm. And what I realized, they had about 50 people from all over the Philippines came from different um, tribes and whatever. And I quickly realized that many of them were really smart and mm-hmm. really experienced. Mm-hmm. In fact, there were you know PhDs. There were a lot of really incredible people in the audience. And the problem they were having is that they were trying to save seeds from several things that never produced seeds. Well, so we I, we looked into that, and we found out that what they were having trouble with were northern temperate, what we call temperate cl- crops, uh-huh. um, carrots and celery. Those are things that were introduced into the Philippines, especially during World War II. Mm-hmm. American domination, you know, first Spain and then American dominated, brought in these varieties of things from the northern latitudes. Well, they now they're growing them, they've got seeds for them, but it never gets cold. So if you never get a carrot cold, it won't go to seed. So it was a, oh. that, that was a simple fix. Pull you, all your carrots up, put them in the refrigerator for a few months, bring them back out, plant them, and then you'll get your seed. So now they're all going, oh, yeah, celery. They're, they were very excited. But then came the kicker. Almost, They started bringing me the packets of seeds that were available to them. And in less than a generation, they'd gone from all their own open pollinated varieties to being all hybrids. How can you do that? Well, the whole industry was dominated by one company, East West Seeds. Mm -hmm. It was started by the son of the man who started Syngenta. Oh my gosh. And he went to Asia and started this company. And so they had every Filipino farmer, and there are millions of them, Uh buying all their seeds every year at considerable cost. Wow. And so that's when I went, oh, all we really (laughs) have to do is teach them how to dehybridize. And the energy in the room was palpable. They got the key to unlock and to go forward with everything they were doing. And and they're doing it. Now I think, you know, uh, Global Seed Savers is there, this organization that was already started but morphed into Global Seed Savers. Now they have their own seed libraries and I don't know how many cities and they teach their own seed schools and they teach their own teacher trainings and, and dehybridization is part of all of those classes. Mm. Well, and the magic of what you just said earlier is save the seeds, plant them. And if you're getting the exact same thing, it wasn't a hybrid in the first place. You know, this is, we're just pulling the, the wool off the off the mask here or pulling the curtain back from the wizard of industrial Oz and going, you know, we've always had the Ruby slippers on. We could always go home where, you know, small peasant farmers and gardeners were the ones that created this food system. Mm -hmm. And it was done largely in individual plots in small ways all over the planet. And we can take back and do that again. And that's really the only future I see for us if you want abundance and wealth in your communities and health. And that's what makes it so fun. Right. I had had something exciting happen this morning. Let me see if I can find it. I'm scrolling through my news feed and from the UN, this is an article by Agnes Calibata, Climate Change. 
food systems are key to collective survival, to our collective survival. And so I'm reading down through this article and they're using the words that I've been using for like 30 years. Who would have thunk? Right? <laughs> and the important thing for everybody listening today is that the basis for a, a thriving local food system, you cannot have a thriving local food system without this is what, Bill? Well, seeds. Local seeds. That's right. Yeah, right. Yeah. You just this, can't. This is the bottom line of making sure that we are healthy globally to have our own local seeds. Right. Yeah. And they've been disappearing from farmers and gardens fields. 90% maybe the United Nations wow. did a survey in 1990, just counting mm -hmm. the number of varieties that were in fields, as opposed to say 1950, 90% of all wow. of the local stuff's gone. Yeah. It's just not being planted. It's not extinct. There've been, you know, predictions that it all went extinct. No, it's still a lot of that stuff's hiding out there. Right. We've been finding it. In fact, since Kent Whaley, you know, and his wife started the Seed Savers Exchange, in the early 80s, oh my gosh, that's um, the number of varieties. Yeah, number of varieties has increased that are yeah. available to in uh, American gardens and farms. And then lately, you know, we're seeing a huge explosion of local seed companies. I love it, San Diego Seed Company. When was uh, the last time? You know, Grand, Grand Prismatic Seed Company in Utah. Two young men that have just like they're rocking it. You know, it's just great what's going on. So I'm really, I'm really hopeful. And, but again, no matter what level you get into this as a gardener, just save some of your own seeds. It'll just yeah. unlock so much in what's going on and give you such a connection to your community. Everything else is easy. And if you want to get up to 60, you know, zero to 60 real fast, if you understand this the way Greg does, and I've been um, dabbling in for 30 years, I mean, you know, it was hard to sell this message 30 years ago. Right. It's getting a lot easier. A lot oh, more yeah. people waking up. So if you want to do that, if you want to go zero to 60, we've, you know, your online courses are the best, yeah. I think. And so, nice. you know, I just think that's what, that's the best of what we've put together to get people to join us. So. Right. Well, one of our courses is Seed School Online. Right. SeedSchoolOnline.com is where you can go. And there's a great video of Bill there talking about seed saving. In fact, that video, that remember that day that I came up and you yeah. sat out in your backyard and I turned on the camera and it started raining on us? Yeah. Yeah, that's the video. It's an it's a brilliant video. I think that's the last time it rained. <laughs> no. Right? There you go. That's seedschoolonline.com. So I have one question before we wrap this up today. I have one question for you. You grow a lot of things. You know, what is a lot? I don't know. I've got 24 different ancient and heritage grains growing right now. Right. How do you start your seeds? Wow. Good question. What's the process by which you actually get things growing? Do you do them in trays? Do they go in the ground? Right. So I'm, I've been influenced again by Joseph Lofthouse in the last uh, couple of years, and I'm growing less and less in trays early. Mm -hmm. Because I'm selecting for varieties that grow best in trays. Mm. And as I get uh, older, especially, and I don't have a, enough time, why not plant a wider variety of, of genetics and find things that will actually just come up in my yard and give me what I want? So I'm on a trying to do that. So I'm planting more and more things in the ground. And the 24 ancient and heritage grains I have, I all I planted... 
with a planting stick about an inch deep on January 19th this year in my yard. So we're two months old at this point. How tall are they? Oh, some are, you know, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, wow. I'm looking at a July, 4th of July harvest before it gets really, really hot and burning. That's mm -hmm. the idea. They're winter grains. That's January, the time. February, March, April, May, June. So yeah. we're talking like six months. Yeah, that's pretty normal for grains. Most of them grew in northern temperate climates and grew in the summer between, you know, May and September, October. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So now I do start tomatoes and peppers. I'm a big pepper fan now. Mm -hmm. And I just planted ghost peppers and Carolina reapers and um, <laughs> scotch. I got into hot peppers. I finally I was going to say you're into the hot stuff, right? Oh, my God. Since I learned how to make sauerkraut out of them. So I don't have to can things anymore. I don't dry them. When I dry them, I just don't eat them very much. But mm -hmm. kraut, hot pepper kraut, just a little bit on every meal. It's just the best. And oh, I'm getting those probiotics, you know. Yeah, exactly. So I'm starting those in flats. And I use a potting soil. Mm -hmm. And so I, I bought these flats years ago called Speedling. Todd's Speedling Flats. Because mm -hmm. they're pyramid shaped. Relatively, the shape of the roots are going to be, and then they pull out. Uh, each plug pulls out pretty easy, uh, mm -hmm. and I have different sizes. So, and I've got um, one of those heating pads under my peppers, and I put a piece of paper over the top to keep them moist for the ten days it takes to two weeks, probably. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, because we're we are uh, Heidi and I are thirty five days away from not yeah. living in Phoenix anymore at this point. Good and, morning. Uh, right. <laughs> Your and, education is about to begin. Right. So <laughs> I actually have hired a couple of permaculture people back there to help me out because oh, I good. know natural systems in Phoenix. Uh -huh. I know permaculture yeah. in Phoenix. Right. And I know permaculture principles right. because I've been working with them for over 30 years. And what I don't know is how things grow or don't grow in Asheville, North Carolina. Well, it would take you another 30 years. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Wep, isn't that the great thing about community then? Oh, yeah. Tap yourself into a network and find people doing what you're doing and share it. That's how mm -hmm. we can all get along. It gets you up and running. Amen to that. Yeah, yeah, so we'll be building a greenhouse. That's part of my deal with myself to to right. when we get there. We're, we're enclosing a back patio and putting in a greenhouse so that we can walk out to the back patio and then into the greenhouse without going outside. Right. And uh, hopefully the greenhouse will be done by September, October timeframe and we'll be able to grow through the winter. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, you know, to find greenhouses where things are growing, you know, as local a one as you can and go in and look. Greenhouses are real learning curves. Yeah. People go, oh, I'm going to be able to grow. But what the, the one I, th I, I'll just give you my biggest lesson is that every insect that loves gardens and garden vegetables in the summer, every one of those within 25 square miles will be in your greenhouse in the winter because it's the only place where that climate is oh right so you're gonna have to you know so just be on the lookout for things like white flies and aphids and those sorts of things and yeah. so yeah well it's definitely a bit different because uh, i've started yeah. talking to people about fruit trees back there and it's a much wetter climate yeah so yeah. hey mona has a question can you please go over how to mona i'm assuming you mean save tomato seeds using the wet method to make them more resistant. She says, yes. So just real quickly go over how to wet method save tomatoes. Take your tomato, cut it in half at the equator. 
So the stem is the North Pole, right? Mm -hmm. So just like you would look at it in a, in a picture, cut it at the equator, take each half in each hand and squeeze out all the juice, jelly and seeds into a jar. And if you can do more than one tomato at a time, do it. You know, mm -hmm. I like to get an inch or two of that jelly and seed stuff in a jar. Put it in a place you like to be out of the sun, 72 degrees. I put mine behind the sink so I can watch them every day. Mm -hmm. Three to five days, a white bread mold will form on the top. A yeast that's embedded in the mix will eat the jelly off. The good seeds will fall to the bottom. Stir it occasionally so the seeds can fall. After the four or five days and you see all your good seeds on the bottom, pour off carefully the glummy, goopy stuff and the bad seeds. Uh, fill the jar full of water and let the good seeds fall to the bottom. You might take a few minutes till they all settle in, then pour all that dirty water off. Fill and repeat. We call that water winnowing. When you get that done a few times, pour it through a strainer to get rid of the water. Take that strainer and pop it onto a paper towel and you'll have a little tomato cookie. Yes. Just dry it out for a few days. You can break them up with your hands, and that's exactly how they come in seed packets. Excellent. Right? Yes, yes. So interesting you should say this. When I was back in North Carolina last August, the people that we stayed with, longtime friends of mine, uh, had a sun gold tomato plant. Just so they're little, right. oh, yeah. you know, smaller than golf ball size. Right. supposed to be a hybrid. Right. So while I was there... Um, I worked with Tom, my friend that I stayed with, right. and we cut some in half and we saved some seeds. And um, I'm going to grow those out, assuming they're not hybrids. I would, that would be my assumption too. I think Sun Gold a long time ago yeah. was dehybridized. Yeah. That's just what I've heard. I mean, so you think about it to, to create a hybrid tomato, mm -hmm. you have to hand pollinate, you have to do a cross. And hand pollinations, you know, this is what we used to say 20 years ago, is mostly done in Asia, and they pay, pay, pay people a dollar a day. Mm. I mean, it's just very intensive work. There's hardly any other way. To, there are, you know, they try to create these uh, using uh, cytoplasmic sterility. Try oh, to, bless you. Yeah, they try to, you know, speed up or do this stuff. But whatever it is, it's more expensive. Mm -hmm. They're just growing the tomatoes and saving the seeds. And so if you really can stabilize a line, why wouldn't the companies do that? They could do that in two years with their greenhouses. Cut their expenses way down, leave the name on it, bingo. We're making bank. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, Mona says thank you. And uh, Greg says thank you, Bill. I appreciate you being here and sharing your wisdom with us again. I love how you and Bell come up with these great topics and, and engage us in the conversation. And the reason I do this podcast is because I get to learn. <laughs> I learned some things tonight and this is why, you know, that's why yeah. I love this. So no, that's why I always learn something too. So yeah. thank you. All right, man. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you everybody for showing up and we will catch you next month. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.